This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. I'm an associate professor of communication studies. Hello, Pete Tucker. Uh, I teach computer science at Whitworth. And we're here to uh, share a little discussion about social media privacy and other modern myths. Before we get started, quick show of hands, how many folks here are alumni? Awesome. Welcome. First visit to the music building since the new, um, how do you like it? Love it. Awesome. Beautiful. How many folks here are parents? Whoa, awesome. Uh, how many of you first visit to the music building? Beautiful. Enjoying it? Those of you on a second one, is it every bit as good as the first experience? And how many people here are students? Way to be awake early in the morning. Nicely done. And the rest. <laughs> Well, we're so glad that you could be here to join us and uh, to be a part of a little bit of a, uh, an exercise, right, about what happens when people just ask you for information. Like, how many of you here are alumni? <laughs> how many of you here are parents, right? What happens when we give that information? And what uh, do people do with that information so freely given? So, we start with Let's say this form pops up on Facebook, right? You get it from that great old friend from high school that you really haven't talked to in about 14 years, right? And they're like, hey, what kind of Christmas are you? You think, okay, I'll bite. And you click on it and you get questions like this, right? The perfect gift for you would be, I say reindeer, you say. You say. Nobody? Slay. Awesome, thank you. Okay. Your ideal Christmas tree is, your favorite holiday food, and a holiday party you'd like to, right? You see these questions. It all seems pretty, you know, pretty safe, pretty bland, right? It's going to come up with something like, you're a Christmas fanatic. You love all things holiday. Or you're a, ooh, you're a bah humbug. You just wish the holidays would be over, right? You're going to get something cute. You're going to kind of laugh about it. You might even go, ha ha, that is a little bit me. You're going to move on with your day. The thing is, this grabs some really interesting information. Information about you. And maybe the answers don't look like they say a lot about you. But if we put them all together, some interesting things emerge. And heck, even when you just start to click on this, right, the very first thing that you do when you open it, that website starts to collect information. Now this might all look like a whole lot of gobbledygook, but folks like uh, Pete here can tell you that what's getting um, gathered here is really interesting. I can have a lot of fun with this, by the way. I want to point out first that this quiz that Erica showed you is not, uh, it's hosted by Facebook, but Facebook has no idea about it, other than possibly, probably the app, the company that put that quiz together. Facebook has no, it, nothing to do with it other than they hosted it and let their friends see it. The other thing, notice what's in the highlighted box there is label gender, label age, label username, last visit. That's not anything to do with the quiz, is it? That data right there has nothing to do with the quiz, but the company that put that quiz together, which again is not Facebook, said, I'd like to get that information. I'd sure like your username. I'd sure like your gender, your age. That could help me with other clients that I have to you know, maybe target advertising, or maybe to uh, hoist political stances on different people, right? 
Now, if you look at that, it says label, gender, value, null. So this particular user does not fill in that blank for gender. doesn't fill in that blank for age. And you might be thinking, well, that user's safe. Safe from all that stuff because they don't know nothing about who that is. Okay. We'll see later. That's always, not necessarily always right. And once you start to kind of pull back the curtain, a lot of people's reaction, well, is this. Right? <laughs> 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 what we're here to talk about today is what the reality of it really is, right? And how much should you be this, and how much should you be thoughtful about the myth of social media privacy? So we're going to talk about it in three parts. First, we're going to talk about how it works on the major platforms. Second, we're going to talk a little bit about the, what the law has to say. And then third, we're going to talk about that whole big thing that brought Mark Zuckerberg to Congress, Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and what that's changed in the social media environment. So one of the things that Facebook did, you might remember MySpace a long time ago. You might remember Friendster. I think there was even a third degree website that tried to tell you how far you're away from Kevin Bacon. We don't do Facebook, Friendster anymore. We don't use MySpace anymore. One of the big reasons Facebook beat MySpace and beat Friendster was they allowed third parties to say, I'd like to develop an app and host it on that site. And as a third party, you're thinking, that's a great idea, because if you like the app, you've got enough friends, and you might say, hey, you should all try this app and compete with me. Uh, you see up there under the pictures, Farmville, Words with Friends, Two Dots. I'm still a sucker for Two Dots, as it turns out. And I'm logged in through Facebook on Two Dots, which means I can keep track of who else plays it. And I can see how much I'm beating them by. And it's all about beating them. I'm really good at it. Um, so all these apps have a really good purpose. I don't mean to say that they're all negative. I don't mean to make it sound all that scary, because I do enjoy some of these games. I do enjoy some of the other things that I can share with my friends. But as you saw, these apps, when they get accepted by Facebook, these apps have access to data beyond just the app itself. And it makes some sense, right? How else would Bejeweled be able to say, hey, invite your friends to come play with you? They have to have access to your friends, right? Even for that feature to work. So it makes sense that they should have that data. But keeping an eye on what's going on is important. So I want to kind of highlight three different social media uh, platforms that people are using somewhat regularly, some more than others, uh, and kind of highlight how they work. First one is Twitter. And Twitter is interesting because it's wide open public. As soon as I ask Twitter, hey, I'm making this app, here's some data that I want to use in this app for whatever reason, I'll explain, I promise. And Twitter says, yep, you're in, or no, that app isn't part of how we play. Wide open public after that. And I mean wide open public after that. I got a demo for you. I'm working on, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a computer scientist, which means I'm always working on different uh, apps, different things. Here's this app I'm working on now. And one of the things I'm trying to do in my app is to convince business partners to put content into my app so I can show that content to my users, which as a whole, I think 80 now. We're fine. Anyway, but what I want to show you is, you see on the left, it is your left. Yes, it says add Instagram, add Facebook, and add Twitter, a new Twitter. Right now, only Twitter works. The other two, I'm trying to work through the process, and I'll explain in a bit. But there's Twitter there. And I can put any Twitter handle I want here. So I'm going to type at Beck Taylor. This could be a career limiting move, but I think I told you before I've been here 16 years, I might be okay. Anyway, I put Beck Taylor there. I'm going to hit add. 
it's there. It is way over there. Now it's here. And now notice Twitter Beck Taylor is there. I'm certain that Beck Taylor did not get a notification that I asked for this. Certain of it, because you can see my, my Twitter is the one right below it. And I know I didn't get it asked either. And when I click on that, these are all of Beck Taylor's tweets. Again, Beck has no idea that my app pulled that data. No idea. Not only do I have his tweets and the pictures that might have gone up with his tweets, I also have anyone who, anyone's Twitter handle that commented on his data. Anyone who's following him. I have all those Twitter handles, which meant if I wanted to, I was thinking about this this morning, I could put together an app that basically says, I know, I can put together this great big network of who's who and who knows who and who's following who. And Twitter, that's, that's, but that's Twitter's platform, right? Twitter's wide open now, but they intentionally didn't make it that public. So there's Twitter, we'll put that away. When I ask Twitter, am I actually gonna need the user feed? Because I have to say, Twitter, these are the things I'm going to ask for. I'd love to get user feed on Beck Taylor. I get when the tweets were created, I get the text, the hashtags, the images, users who made comments, the comments text, I get all of it for free. It's fantastic. Then, if we think about Instagram, Instagram is a little bit different. Instagram is a little more careful with who they let have their data. You really have to go through an app approval process. And the approval process involves those three pieces right there. You have to say and prove, yes, one of those three my app is doing. Either I'm giving individuals a way to get content out, or I'm letting brands uh, help their users understand and manage their rights, or I'm letting broadcasters and publishers uh, discover more content. I have to argue one of those three when I go through the approval process. I also have to give a pretty detailed explanation in words of how I'm using the data. And I have to give a screencast of how of the app in action using that data. So Instagram, all of a sudden, and we'll get to this in a bit, has changed their rules and made it a lot harder for folks to get in. Once I'm improved, then if you see my app on your Instagram feed and say, oh, that sounds interesting, I'd like to use it, you have to, I have, you have to click a button and they'll say, are you sure you want this app to have access to your content? You say yes, because who reads that anyway? And then we're off the road. Does that make sense so far how Instagram's really different from Twitter? And I can't demo it because, like I said, I'm still going through the process on that one. <coughs> Facebook looks a whole lot like Instagram other than they prove one of three lists. Other than that, they do have a pretty detailed uh, security system, a pretty detailed approval process to say, how are you going to use the app? Again, I have to give a good text description of it. How are you going to use the data? Again, I have to give a good video cast of that data as well. But again, once I have that information, you saw that list. I have all of it. Once you say yes, and again, I'll come back to who actually reads the, what am I giving away to play two dots? I didn't read it. I played two dots. It was, it was great. Um, Instagram and Facebook once are, are really similar, but that makes sense, right? Because Instagram is now part of Facebook, so you can see them running side by side together. Let's get back to this image here of the data that looked pretty safe. Gender, no. Age, no. That's pretty safe, right? But here's where I went, and I said, wait a minute. Here's where the wait a minute is. Notice that I have access to your friends. I have access to their posts. If most of your friends are a certain age, age range, I can put a pretty good guess on your age, even though you didn't tell me. I can put a pretty good guess on your gender, even though you didn't tell me. 
based on what you post and based on who your friends are. So even though you didn't fill in those fields, it doesn't take a whole lot of leaps for me to figure out, I'm pretty sure you're in this range. And if you think about it, if I have a thousand people all said no, but I got all their friends, I'll bet I'll be about 75, 80% accurate on your age and your gender and all the other information you didn't give me. And if I'm 75, 80%, that's valuable data to a lot of people. So you're probably thinking, that can't be right. But clearly there must be a legal solution here. And that's been the question of the last five years, right? What about the law? Isn't there something that should come in here and say, but you can't do this? And the law gets a little bit challenging here, largely because it tends to surround privacy, right? What are our rights to privacy here? Now, one thing I like to do, I do teach media and speech law um, here at Whitworth. One thing I like to do is I say, I have, well, of course I didn't bring it with me, that would have been helpful. I have a copy of a pocket constitution here, and I will give an automatic A in this class to the person who can point to the part that says, you have a right to privacy. And I always get one person who's like, yes! Flip, 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 shoot. Because <laughs> it's a really complex area of law that says that yes, there are rights there, but they're not quite so clear cut. So here's what we're going to do, something very Whitworthy. You're going to turn to the person near you, and you're going to say, what does privacy mean to me? Two minutes, go. It could be in groups of three, two, that's all. Yes, that's <laughs> Much greater complexity, right? 
And so when we look at these sort of changing definitions of privacy or conceptions of privacy, the invasion of privacy then becomes that much harder to discuss. So we have these ideas of privacy. What does the law say? So privacy, first of all, is determined and defined on a state-by-state -state basis. But all states pull from something called the restatement of torts. And the restatement of torts says, if you're talking about privacy, specifically the invasion of it, here's what we're going to work with. First of all, publicity. Here, think of it more as sharing. So it doesn't have to be some big grand event, but publicity or the sharing of information concerning the private life of another. So this gets back to what our students were picking up on. How do I define what's my private life? So somebody sharing something you have defined as, this is in my circle, this is the stuff I get to determine if other people know. It's subject to liability for invasion of privacy if the matter publicized is of kind that A, would be highly offensive to the reasonable person, and B, is not of legitimate concern to the public. Here's the interesting part, right? That highly offensive. Now we hear that and we're thinking, people are saying highly offensive things about me, oh no! Not quite that. That's not how the law is getting defined here. What the law is asking here is, was it highly offensive for you to share it? Right? So let's say our friend here in the, in the purple jacket shares something about our friend sitting next to her. And right now our friend sitting next to her is going, oh no, what did she share? Right? <laughs> We're not going to ask, was that item, was that private item that came out of this person's life, was that highly offensive? We're going to say, was the fact that our friend here in the purple jacket is the fact that she shared it, was that highly offensive? And that's the thing that we're going to be looking at, right? How shocking, how egregious, how terrible was it that she shared that information, that private information? The second thing we'll look at is, but was there a legitimate concern to the public? And this is a little bit of a tough standard. It tends to come more into play for public figures, for people who are in the public eye. We kind of need to know sometimes when, let's say, our government leaders do things that are really, really horrible. And they might say, that's part of my private life. And they say, no, but that's going to affect how you lead our country. We kind of need to know. That tends to be more where we see that intersection come into play. But let's say somebody in this room has, I don't know, whooping cough. And there are other people in this room who aren't, uh, don't have protections against that. that kind of situation could also be a legitimate concern to the public. So those are the two questions that we ask. And when it comes to social media, where the law really struggles is, okay, we want to be private on a platform that has social as 50% of its name. It's not media, it's social media. And there's where the courts have really said, well, how do we determine an expectation of privacy on a platform where half of its name is sharing, half of its name is conversation? What expectation of privacy really exists in social media? That's where it becomes so hard to bring the law into play. And that's why we continue to struggle with this reasonable expectation versus information freely shared on a platform where sharing is the now that's not to say that the law has not acted at all, and it has done some very interesting things. First of all, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. So you might remember a really common uh, meme from the 50s and the 60s of um, especially movies and TV shows that were very um, focused on social issues. There'd always be somebody who would go, but what about the children? Right? That's what this law was created for. 
So initially created just to regulate websites, but in 2012 updated to include both apps and social media platforms. COPA, the Children's Online Prote Privacy Protection Act, says that if you are a site that works with children, here identified as people under the age of 13, not 18, 13, if you are a site that works primarily with that age group, then you must get parental consent and opt in to the collection and use of that child's data on that website, app, or social media service. Anybody here have a kiddo who ever got a Webkins? I see a couple of, yeah, I remember that, right? So you get the little Webkins, cute little stuffed animal, but it also lives online. You get to go online and register, and you get to build a little house for the Webkins, and he gets to go make friends, and oh, it's so fantastic. For your child to get on that site, the site has to send an email to the parent. The parent has to opt in with a whole lot of information with the expectation that the parent will read it all and give consent, right? That is a direct result of this law. And there have been organizations that have run afoul of this law. Ring pop, right? People familiar with that? It's basically a, a, it's a, a lollipop in the shape of a very big, fake-looking uh, ring. You put it on your, your finger. You, I don't know. I kind of think it collects lint, right? <laughs> it's sticky, and it's near clothes. It's going to collect lint all day long. Ring pop. We're going to follow this law because they decided to have competition, right? Show us how you ring pop. Post it online, and maybe you'll get to win. Oh, it was visiting a, a concert with whatever the local, or the boy band at the moment is. So what happens? You get a lot of 9, 10, 11 year old girls posting photos of themselves with ring pops that the company then reposted on Twitter, and on Facebook, and on Instagram with these girls' uh, names, sharing their information on a social media platform without the consent of parents. And they got hit. Big fines. Um, and um, threats of other potential issues, right? Somebody made a really bad call there. The law is meant to protect children. Now, when this law was created, it's a little bit of the tail wagging the dog because a lot of the big media outlets already identified 13 or 14 as the, the cutoff age, the one that you had to join. So when you've got Facebook already saying 13 or 14, well, it's really convenient to create this law with 13 or 14, right? They could have said it at 18, and then all of a sudden, Facebook would have had to double check all of their teenagers and get parental consent in. Yeah, they didn't want to do that. Set to 13. Dun, dun, dun. There's also fraud. You can't promise privacy and then not deliver on it. So Snapchat. Anyone here on Snapchat? <laughs> Snapchat, when it first launched, said, you can send a snap and it disappears after an hour. Somebody reads it, one hour later, 60 minutes, you can count on, gone, never to come back again. Fantastic, it became a huge platform for harassment. What was the problem? Not true, not true at all. First of all, how easy is it to capture a screenshot? Oops, snaps didn't go away, we captured a record. And a group of undergrads from MIT very, very easily hacked the system, got in, and found all the safe snaps on the company's servers. Those things didn't go away. They were all retrievable. 
So what happens? The Federal Trade Commission comes in and says, here's what you promised and here's the reality, and they don't match, and that equals fraud. Great law on the books that tackles fraud. 20 years, the FTC put in a fine that said for the next 20 years, every year you will come back and you will tell us what your privacy rules and regulations are, how you are living into them, and how you reconcile any problems. It was a huge wake-up call to social media who realized that somebody's paying attention. And 20 years of oversight by a federal um, authority, there are social media outlets that have not existed for 20 months. Suddenly they see a very long future where they're going to be held incredibly accountable for everything that they do. And so this became an issue. This became an answer. This became an application of law. And then came the GDPR. Right, so the GDPR isn't US law. It comes out of the EU, the European Union, right? So GDPR, which I always forget what it stands for, the General Data Protection? Protection Regulation. There we go. GDPR, which is created by the EU, which has a far more privacy-friendly environment than the US, um, largely because of some of how we apply speech law in this country versus how they apply it in the European Union. But the GDPR said people have a right to control over their private information. So if you operate a website that gathers information, if you operate online retail that collects any kind of information, if you do anything in the digital space that collects information, you have to be much more open about how you collect that, how people can opt out, and what you will do with that information. <clears throat> Which sounds great, right? Way to go, European Union, right? They passed it in 2016. It goes into effect this May, May of 2018. Here's the problem, right? The internet doesn't pay attention to geography. It's very hard to say, okay, this website's only gonna be in the US. Nobody else can look at it. That doesn't happen, right? And why would you want it to if you are contributing to this gigantic global marketplace of ideas? Why would you want to be, but Europe, stay away. You can't block them off. So if you have a website or a service or a retail outlet that at all gets accessed into the EU, you need to comply with this law. Which may be why perhaps you noticed like late May, early June, a lot of your favorite websites, all of a sudden this thing would pop up at the bottom, right? This is to let you know, in compliance with GDPR, this is how we use your data. One, you know, one, one governing body creates a rule, but everybody has to comply with it. Unless somehow you're gonna block your uh, website off from access to the EU, or you simply gather no information. There's always that option. You gather no information, GDPR doesn't apply to you. Fines for violation up to 20 million euro. That's something, that's a fine with teeth. And so when we look at privacy from the legal perspective, we understand in the US we have that little bit of a challenge because of that expectation of privacy, but the law is working, is creating some solutions to try and find a middle ground. And then came Cambridge Analytica. Due to technical difficulties, recording was interrupted at this point of the presentation. We will now rejoin the event in progress. So suddenly we had this, this idea, right, this, this 
thing that we kind of lasered in on about what does social media privacy mean. And then results started coming in, both pro and, well, let's call them questionable. I think what's interesting first about uh, the Cambridge Analytica piece is that Alexander Conan was a respected academic. He published papers on data analytics. And when he went through the approval process, uh, I guess in 14 with Facebook, he said, I'm going to use this data towards my research, towards my academic work. So he was misleading, obviously, but he was able to get through uh, their original uh, approval process. So in the midst of the scandal, Instagram and Facebook said, yeah, this is a problem. We should start doing things. Instagram, actually, up to this point, their, their API was relatively open. Businesses could go through a quick application process, say, here's who I am. Instagram gave a quick stamp, and they were able to get that, that data off of user accounts if they opted in. And so a lot of legit businesses started being formed, saying, wow, this is great Instagram data. All these images are fantastic, and if these users don't mind me seeing their data, I can use that for good reasons. And we'll talk about one company in a second. In January 18, Instagram, again, as part of Facebook, started saying, yeah, this is a problem. We should start doing something smarter than that. So they sent notice to all the companies that had registered their apps through their checkmark uh, approval process and said, okay, over the course of the year, this open uh, functionality that we've given you, we're going to start to pull it back because it's gotten out of hand and it has the potential to really get out of hand. So in June of 2018, we're going to stop allowing you to get access through this functionality. And in December, we're going to stop letting you get access to this functionality. We're taking that away. And they said, we're going to update our approval process. You can get back in by going through our more stringent approval process. Seems reasonable. And then as Zuckerberg starts going through all of this, and all the big mess gets louder and louder and louder from the newspapers, in, I think, May, in May, Instagram said, you know what, never mind, it's all done. No warning to any business at all. We're cutting all that functionality off. You need to go through the application process now, because this is getting to be bad PR, among other things. So in April, May, all that planned deprecation. They didn't wait till June, they didn't wait till December. They got rid of it all, hid it all from their users. And now, like I said, they've got a really strict approval process that you need to go through. All of this, uh, you can see on, the, on your left, Devin Lind graduated, I think, in 2014 from Whitworth with a computer science degree. Started a company right out of, uh, right after, right out of school called, at that time, Photobox. And Photobox is a really cool business idea. It is basically a really sturdy printer. You take it to an event like a Spokane Indians baseball game or to a Coca-Cola event or to the state fair. And then people at the fair, you might have seen this, people at these events, it's announced, hey, hashtag with this hashtag, whatever it is, Spokane Indians baseball. And then you can go show up at the photo box booth and they'll print your picture out for you and you have a nice glossy hard copy of that photo you took. And it's doing great. Doing fantastic, but it was using some of those deprecated APIs. So January came along, and Devin's like, "Okay, we gotta start paying attention to this." And then May shows up. April May shows up. All this functionality they were relying on gone, and they have to quickly recover from all this. So it's interesting to see from that point of view is that not just you know we really weren't worried about user uh, experiences and user privacy, but we also gotta remember there are some good businesses out there. 
that are doing legit good things with this data. Not every business is bad. They've built a whole business. Devin's business is built solely on Instagram. Now he's starting to diversify and start to go other directions because he realizes how independent he is. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so users of social media hear all this. They see Mark's letter in the newspaper. And they say, oh, good. They're taking care of my privacy now. This is much better. Um, most Instagram users didn't know how open their API was ahead of time. Now they do. But really, it's just a letter from Facebook saying, we promise to do something about it. Is that good enough? Maybe it is. We'll see how that turns out for them. But again, businesses have their own side of this. They're relying on this functionality. So just to pull it from them, they were using it for legitimate reasons. And now they have to go through a more strict process, which we could say is good, or we could say is a little bit questionable. Good. All right, so bring it home. Right now you're going, gosh, you've depressed us. <laughs> we came here expecting a fun weekend where we were going to leave feeling uplifted. Now you've come and said, nothing is safe. And indeed, we just had news of another Facebook data breach. And there may be that concern. You may be thinking, well, is there a way to exist on these platforms which do have benefits? There are incredible opportunities using things like Facebook to stay connected with people who distance might keep us separate from. Twitter does have its downside, but it has some upsides too in terms of opportunities to engage in interesting conversations and hear perspectives from a wide range of people. And Instagram fits into this new visual culture that we know that the uh, Y-Gen and the I-Gen and the Millennials are seeing greater degrees of information in. The things that we're teaching right now, research is showing us they can see more in images and pictures. They can see narratives, they can see meaning, they can see detail more than any other generation before them. And Instagram and Snapchat gives them the opportunity to storytell with one another in ways that we never would have thought of. We use words for, they use images for. So social media has great opportunities, but there are a few things that we can do, and some of this may seem like it's old, but let's go back to that idea of Bigfoot unicorns and other social media, and social media and other privacy myths, right? The unicorn in the room is your privacy settings. Facebook did a, an internal survey a couple of years ago, and they found that 40% of users never touch their privacy settings. They are the exact same settings that were there when the account launched. Again, social media. Everything was set to public. They found further that something like 15 to 20% didn't even know how to find their way to privacy settings. And a very small percentage didn't know that privacy settings existed. So knowing privacy settings, using privacy settings, we have seen in some court cases that privacy settings have made a difference in the legitimate expectation of privacy. If you can say, I went in and said, you can't look at this, and then somehow they were able to look at this, you are able to establish a better right to privacy. Is it as good as if it was something that you had written down and hid underneath your bed um, mattress? No, but it makes a difference. Know your privacy settings, use your privacy settings, revel in your privacy settings, have a privacy settings party. There's opportunities there, right? So that's step one. <laughs> step two, the Bigfoot in the room. Keep up with policy changes. 
right? So we've seen a bunch of those happen, especially in the wake of Cambridge Analytica. We see Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat saying, we have made changes to our policies. And they are required under the Federal Trade Commission to tell you that those changes have occurred. Now, you don't get to go back to Facebook and say, I don't like that change, I reject that change, because Facebook gets to say, well, we're really gonna miss you, close your account. But knowing, right, staying alert, staying vigilant, knowing when those changes occur, empower you to go back to step one and alter your privacy settings accordingly. And finally, understanding that there is a social in social media. Some interesting research that's coming out from high schoolers right now is that some of them, not all of them, and of course I'm never gonna make sweeping statements about anybody in any generation, but many high schoolers perceive social media as a private journaling platform. And that mismatch of what it's, uh, how they're using it and how it lives in the digital sphere creates really wrong um, expectations of privacy. And so it's remembering, it's teaching, it's discussing the social and social media. These were created to be platforms where sharing occurs. And if you don't want to be sharing, and that's okay, this is not where you need to be. There are other places to still create really good human connection. There are still pla other places where you can get really good information. This is not your only option, but this option comes with strings. Understanding those help us use it better. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Any questions? 